He had leased a house that sat where Dogwin Hall is today, and that would become the governor's mansion through the last two colonial governors of Maryland. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jim, and I'm originally from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Uh, graduate of the College of William and Mary, and uh, served a couple of years in the U.S. Army as a draftee during the Vietnam period, uh, and fell into museum work there. And I transferred here from Fort Benning, Georgia, in 1967. So. I've been at the U.S. Naval Academy for 48 years, and that's why I know so much about Annapolis. Uh, uh, I've never actually lived downtown. Um, I've always lived out in the countryside, but um, I've been a member of historic Annapolis for nearly 50 years. Uh, and what's great about the town, and I hope you've had the opportunity during your time here as midshipmen, uh, to walk the streets of Annapolis and see the fantastic architecture and. Um, street planning uh, that, that was done here in the 18th, uh, or well, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, it's really a remarkable uh, town. And this morning I'm t supposed to tell you about what it was like back in 1812. I wasn't quite here then, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've done a couple of um, handouts for you, but. And the first one I, I'm going to read to you, after the revolution, America, uh, Annapolis's life of fashion subsided. Its commerce departed. Wealth gradually took its flight from the city, and it fell into a somnolent state. In these days of dreamy slumber, a naval commission uh, supposedly reported that, and I quote, a, a polar expedition is useless to determine the Earth's axis. Go to Annapolis, rather. It should be called the Pivot City. It is the center of the universe for while all the world around it revolves, it remains stationary. One advantage is that you always know where to find it. To get to Annapolis, you have to but cultivate a colossal calmness, and the force of gravity will draw you towards the greater center. Once there, there is no centrifugal force to displace you, and you stay. Uh, by natural uh, evolution, your hands disappear in your breeches pockets and you assume the most marked characteristic of the indigenous Annapolitan. No glove merchant ever flourished there. Annapolitans in heaven have heads and wings, their hands disappear. An old tombstone, you may see them on, as angels. On earth they resemble exclamation points, all heads and tails like the fish they eat. Natural evolution um, develops itself in the taste for oysters as they need no carving, and a phosphorus diet swells the brain. They talk politics continually. Annapolis keeps the Severn River in its place. This will be useful when the harbor of Baltimore dries up. Annapolitans are waiting for this. They are in no hurry. They don't mind waiting. Two or three centennials will do. Uh, this was published in one of the first full-length histories of the city. Uh, by a guy named uh, L.U. Riley in 1887, uh, and it's repeated in the, very prominently in the newest history by Jane McWilliams, um, uh, which is, is, is excellent and which a lot of the material that I'm going to speak about this morning is drawn from. Um, politics, that's what saved the town. Uh, 
the state capital was moved here in 1695 and has been here ever since. Although at this period that you're studying uh, today, uh, there was a number of threats to move it to Baltimore, the new um, major city uh, in the state. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, the rural interests were very much in, uh, enjoyed coming to Annapolis by the sea uh, and enjoying the oysters and uh, seafood here. Um, and of course, as, as the harbor of Baltimore drives up, well, that was uh, uh, the main contention to Annapolis in the first half of the, of the 19th century. Uh, in 1790, uh, Baltimore was the fourth-ranked city in population in America. Uh, by 1800, it, it had surpassed Boston and was the third. Uh, even today, it still is, you know, uh, among the top 20 and uh, the ninth most important port or biggest port uh, in the United States. Um, I think I'll go back and, and, and give you a, a brief um, uh, resume of how Annapolis came about. Uh, in the late 1620s, um, a guy named George Calvert, uh, who became the first Lord Baltimore, uh, asked his uh, good friend Charles I, King of England, uh, to uh, let him take over the property uh, in the New World in America between uh, what was then the colony in Pennsylvania and the colony in Virginia, established in 1607. Um, George actually dies before that happens, but it does happen uh, in 1632. Um, Charles I awards a proprietary colony in America uh, to George's son, Cecil Calvert. Uh, and in 1634, a couple of little chips named the Ark and the Dove uh, depart England. They have quite a torturous trip, um, stopping by Barbados to resupply, finally get here on March 25th. March 25th is still a a holiday in Maryland is one of two state holidays uh, known as Maryland Day because uh, that's the day that these English settlers uh, uh, sent by Lord Baltimore set foot on St. Clement's Island in the Potomac River um, and uh, uh, established uh, the colony of Maryland. Now, they set up their capital in St. Mary's City. Uh, one of the um, purposes as the county or, or colony uh, was religious toleration, particularly for Roman Catholics. Uh, Roman Catholics were suffering in England uh, because of the, you know, the Reformation and the Church of England and so forth. And so the Calverts uh, were Catholic and uh, they wanted uh, an area in the New World where their religion uh, could be practiced without uh, problems. And however, very quickly after the founding of Maryland, the English Civil War broke out. Uh, Charles I is actually uh, beheaded. The, the um, Commonwealth comes along under the Cromwells. And this also spread to the New World. Actually, before the settlement got here in 1634, uh, there was a, break, a breakaway group from the colony in Jamestown, Virginia, uh, which came north in the bay basically to trade with the Native Americans, uh, and they established settlements on Kent Island across the Bay Bridge today from uh, this location, up at the head of the bay at, at Head of Elk. Uh, they sided with the Parliament, uh, whereas, of course, uh, the Calverts and the colony in St. Mary's uh, were part of the king's folks because they had been established by Charles I. This went on for a number of years, finally was played out. Uh, actually, it's fascinating between the 
beginning of Baltimore or, or on Maryland in 1634 and our Declaration of Independence in 1776, there were ten major wars fought, uh, all involving the colonies here to a certain extent. And that's all these wonderful ship models out here in the gallery. We can justify them being here from the fact that those were the ships that were protecting this area, uh, the 13 colonies, uh, during the uh, 17th and 18th centuries and preserved uh, those colonies for Great Britain. In 1655, we even have, a, or 1649 first, we have a, another breakaway group from Jamestown that came up and settled across the uh, Severn River here uh, at Greenberry Point, where those radio towers are, and you're, you're hopefully familiar with Greenberry Point. It was called uh, New Providence, and uh, there are archaeological remains over there today. That's one of the reasons the Navy has to treat the property with um, a certain amount of respect and care, because there are some important archaeological sites at Greenberry Point, which was the first settlement, English settlement in this area. In 1655, we actually have a little naval battle here in the mouth of the Severn River called the Battle of the Severn, and that was part of the English uh, Civil War uh, between the, the forces of Parliament and uh, royalty, the, the king. There, were, there was only one armed uh, vessel involved uh, called the Golden Lion uh, that the folks at Greenberry Point had managed to uh, commandeer, and then the uh, the folks in St. Mary City sent up an expedition mainly in small craft um, which were forced to land in, in Eastport on the other side of Spa Creek. Roundheads went around the head of, of Spa Creek and captured uh, Governor uh, Stone and his forces that had come up from St. Mary's. The Virginians helped the uh, proprietors uh, of Maryland, the Calverts, restore uh, peace here uh, in, in the colony and the authority of the, of the, uh, the Calverts in the proprietary uh, colony. Uh, in 1695, uh, Maryland gets a new governor, a guy, fascinating guy named Francis Nicholson. There's a street here in Annapolis uh, named Francis Street that run, connects Main Street with State Circle. And in Williamsburg, Virginia, there's a, a, a street named Nicholson. Nicholson was a professional royal governor. Uh, he had been a lieutenant governor in Massachusetts. Uh, after Maryland being governor in Maryland, he would be governor in Virginia, actually uh, established Williamsburg, also laid out the, the city of Williamsburg as well as Annapolis. And then later he was governor of Nova Scotia. Here in Annapolis in 1695, uh, he lays out the, the, the town with two circles, church circle and state circle, and all the radiating streets are originally, uh, many of them named after the directions on the, com the compass and so forth, but um, there's also, of course, King George Street and Prince George Street. Uh, King George, uh, um, of course, he had a succession of King Georges in Great Britain at that time. George, uh, well, first, second, third, fourth. Uh, the town was renamed after Princess Anne, who would become Queen Anne. Prince George Street, her husband was George, Pr uh, Prince of Denmark and we also have Duke of Gloucester and so forth. Annapolis in 1708 uh, was incorporated as a, uh, as a city, one of the few in America recognized uh, by uh, the leadership in England as an incorporated city. Actually, in the 17th century, it's very difficult establishing cities in Maryland because in 1650, uh, the Calverts began awarding a lot of the land uh, in, the, in what became Maryland, the state, and they were such large pieces of land that they were awarding. Uh, if you 
in order to get people to come here, uh, they guaranteed to give you 50 acres of land if you got one for each person that you could attract to the new colony. So many wealthy individuals that came here established large plantations in the countryside uh, that were pretty self-sustaining. They didn't need a town to, to support them. They had everything they needed except luxury goods, which they imported from the mother country, from Great Britain. The pri their primary source of income uh, was tobacco. Where almost as immediately as the co colony was established here, uh, tobacco became the main resource uh, income earner for uh, and, and actually was still growing. When I came here uh, 50 years ago, tobacco was still a major crop. And we had these huge uh, auctions over in Upper Marlboro every year for, for the sale of tobacco. The, the real golden age of, of Annapolis uh, is in the second half of the, of the 18th century. Uh, and it's just amazing because 1754, Governor Horatio Sharp, uh, then the, 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 the appointed governor of, of Maryland, held a, a governor's conference here. Actually, the governors of Pennsylvania, uh, New York, Massachusetts, Virginia, all came here to, to, to meet with a, a general named Braddock. Uh, they, colonies were having problems uh, on the frontier with French explorers and, and um, adventurers, and this was the lead up to the last colonial wars known here. It started here in America as the French and Indian War, and then spread to Europe as the Seven Years' War. In 1754, uh, Governor Sharp, by the way, he had had leased a house that sat where Dahlgren Hall is today. And that would become the governor's mansion through the last two colonial governors of Maryland and for all the governors of the new state of Maryland after our independence until 1866 when it was purchased uh, by the federal government and turned into the library for the U.S. Naval Academy. At that house he, he, he met with the governors and General Braddock and then they took an overland trip to Alexandria to review the troops that had been landed. The ship carrying the troops had been sent up the Potomac. Uh, and of course, Braddock took his famous march to the uh, west to uh, what's now Pittsburgh, uh, where he would unfortunately meet his end uh, in a war with the French and Indians. Uh, and of course, one of his aides on that trip was uh, a guy named George Washington, a young farmer from Mount Vernon on the Potomac. The thing about the Seven Years' War, it really knocked the heck out of Great Britain financially. They had been fighting a whole series of colonial wars originally against the Dutch and then uh, the, uh, the Spanish and the French. By the 1760s, uh, they're pretty broke and they're trying to look for all kinds of new resources of funds. And of course, one of those was to tax their colonies and, and uh, the first uh, tax, the Stamp Act in 1765, caused quite a row here. Uh, in Annapolis, it was delivered by a Royal Naval ship, the HMS Hawk. There were some fisticuffs in some of the saloons here, and some prominent Annapolitans uh, uh, ended up in, in uh, the pokey for uh, beating up on the British, you know, naval officers. It had nothing to do with passing the the stamp back, but they they had the bold audacity to bring it here. And then in in 1774, of course, we have the uh, the burning of the tea brig Peggy Stewart down on our waterfront where Loose Hall is today probably. Uh, there's a historic marker down there. But beginning in the 1750s and 60s, Annapolis started building all kinds of, of, of and you can circulate those around, uh, mansions that still stand in the city. Uh, you know, 
One of the wonderful things about Annapolis is the historic preservation movement. There are at least 12 major mansions and, and the, new, the, new, the current state house, uh, the original part of it anyway, was built at that time. Uh, the Maryland Inn at the head of, of Main Street. Uh, it's just amazing. Uh, the buildings from that period that have survived. And it was the golden age uh, of, of Annapolis. There were uh, a lot of uh, important people that were members of the legislature. Uh, many of the houses they built were townhouses for entertaining while the legislature was in session. And because Annapolis was the political capital. Uh, so many of the important people that were living here were politicians, uh, lawyers, the uh, law was taught here course uh, by the senior lawyers. Uh, they were, it was like an apprentice system back then. But uh, those, those were the important folks here uh, in, in Annapolis at that time. But, and many of them had large plantations in the countryside uh, where they grew tobacco and made a lot of money. I have thrown in uh, a sheet er, to you with the um, census figures for Annapolis in 1800. 1810 and 1820, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. As I say, uh, you have this golden age between 1750 and, and, and 1800, but almost immediately after the revolution, Annapolis starts declining. A lot of those uh, young whippersnappers that built these mansions uh, were getting older. Many of them were moving out to their plantations and pay, paying more attention to uh, earning incomes, except during the legislative sessions. Uh, and meanwhile, the, the big houses in Annapolis is where the ladies lived and entertained and helped raise the children. It's, it's, it's interesting about the loss in, in um, uh, population uh, between 1800 and uh, 1810. But what's uh, amazing about it is that the, the big loss was in slaves. And I always thought when I, I was first looking into this period years ago that you know, the slave owners here after the Chesapeake Leopard Affair in 1807 had moved their slaves out to the plantations. There was a lot of panic here when word reached Annapolis that the British had stopped uh, one of our naval ships off uh, the capes outside of uh, Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and they thought that, you know, there, this contention war between France and Great Britain had been going on for, for so many years, the wars of the French Revolution, and then Napoleon, of course. And, and so they were really uh, uh, scared for their, their properties and, and um, moved a lot of their, uh, particularly here in where naval forces could land. Uh, so they moved a lot of their goods out to, to the plantations. However, it's also known as the economy started failing here. And uh, also, uh, the Methodist Church and the Quakers had increased in, in this area and built new churches and new co congregations and were very much um, preaching against uh, slavery. This caused a number of Marylands to get rid of their slaves and sell them south and also free them. Annapolis, by the, the beginning of the American Civil War in 1760, 49% of the uh, black population, African Americans living here in Annapolis were freemen because uh, Annapolis, of course, was a border state uh, at the beginning of the Civil War, but there were still some, some pretty good slave populations, particularly on the eastern shore uh, and, and some of the plantations over there. Now, in this period, in 18, 1807, as part of the, the conflict, and I guess you've all studied naval history, I hope, and, 
and uh, know all about the Chesapeake Leopard affair and how uh, the leopard stopped, uh, fired across the bow of the Chesapeake and uh, made off impressed four sailors, which eventually led to the War of 1812. Um, and of course did lead to embargoes against British goods. In fact, Maryland uh, even had decided to do that before Jefferson uh, got the Congress to go along with the uh, embargo against Great Britain. Also, Alexander Van Horn, who was the local congressman for this district uh, that included Annapolis, uh, began petitioning the, the Naval Affairs Committees of the Congress to help Annapolis protect itself uh, and they were establishing what, what's known as the second, and you're going to have a whole talk about the forts of Chesapeake Bay, uh, the second uh, groups of fort fortifications in the history of the bay uh, by the federal government. And he was successful in 1807 to convince them to build uh, two new forts at Annapolis. There was already a battery at Horn Point over in Eastport, a uh, very small battery, just a couple of guns that had been there since the Revolution. But the Congress voted to, to establish forts on Windmill Point, which we now know as Trident Point here at the Naval Academy, and across the Severn River, uh, a second fort uh, on what's now, well, just in back of the um, boat maintenance facility where they maintain the YPs, uh, between there and the firing range was Fort Madison, and the one on this side was uh, named Fort Severn. And of course, uh, Fort Severn is, should be famous to you because it's the, the original location of the new naval school at Annapolis that was established in 1845. Uh, Fort Severn was about 10 acres. Uh, it had a uh, house on it um, that had been built in 1750, one of the, colonial, or the mansions in the Golden Age uh, for Walter Delaney's family. Um, in fact, even after it became part of the Naval Academy, it was still known as the Delaney House. Uh, it had served um, from 1807 to 1845 as the home of the Commandant of Fort Severn, uh, usually an Army Major. So that was on the property um, already, and they built a circular fortification for mounting the guns. Uh, it was about 100 feet um, in, in diameter and I think 16 feet or, uh, walls uh, around it. A similar uh, structure, although the, the, actually the structure was not similar across the river, and Michelle will tell you a lot more about that. It was more like a star-shaped fort. Those two forts never fired a shot in anger. Uh, however, they probably kept the British from landing here in the War of 1812. One of the thing that's always fascinating me, uh, uh, years ago a woman, a friend, uh, was on the board of the Hammond Harwood house up the street here, uh, asked me to talk uh, about the Navy uh, in Annapolis prior to the U.S. Naval Academy. So I, I found it was a fascinating study for me anyway because I had not realized up to that time how many of our early naval heroes set foot in Annapolis, Maryland. It, it, it was quite surprising that many of the heroes of the War of 1812 had visited here uh, long before there was ever thought of putting a naval school here. What happened in the early 1800s, probably 1804 5, uh, they established a road between here and the new federal capital in Washington. As a result of that r road, uh, a number of, of uh, diplomats insisted on being transported in and out of Annapolis rather than go up the uh, Potomac River, uh, which was much more arduous, particularly for a large warship. Uh, in that period, the navies of the world carried the diplomatic corps. You didn't have airplanes. And so, for example, in November 1804, uh, General Truro, who was the 
uh, new ambassador of the United States from Napoleon in France uh, uh, arrived here and traveled overland into Washington. That same November 1804, William Pinckney, who was a native Annapolitan and a very important um, person in Washington, uh, served in the Congress and uh, was a, had been Attorney General of Maryland and uh, had, uh, entered the diplomatic corps. And Pinckney um, left from here uh, aboard a naval ship to go overseas and uh, become our ambassadors. Uh, he, he was in uh, Russia, the Kingdom of Two Sicilies, and uh, a number of places. That made Annapolis a deep water port for our, our federal government. Um, and in fact, r after the War of 1812, they actually tried to establish a naval depot here. Uh, there was a committee of the uh, city council that wrote to the Board of Governors of St. John's College, for example, in 1817, asking if the college uh, could um, give up their land for the purposes of a naval depot. The, the, the Fathers of St. John's sort of stonewalled it for a couple of years and finally they wrote back and, and said, well, uh, we can't find the, that we have the authority to give the school away. St. John's didn't become a naval depot. And it's very interesting, a few years later in 1826, St. John's adds military science to its curriculum. And I think this was probably to keep um, uh, people coming after it again for, for a naval depot. And certain presidents over there took it more or less seriously after the Civil War. The students at St. John's were actually wearing military uniforms uh, for, for a few years. And that was about the time that we also introduced the, the, the sport of football here. Uh, so we used to have a real crosstown rivalry with St. John's College and, and the Naval Academy, believe it or not. Navy won most of those contests, uh, but one of the early ones, uh, the superintendent uh, jumped into the fisticuffs afterwards, and uh, later Admiral William T. Sampson ended up with a black eye. <laughs> Back in, in the early 19th century, uh, it was remarkable, too, how many graduates of St. John's College went into the Navy, particularly a number of medical people that went on to medical school and became uh, the highest ranks in our Navy and in, in the Medical Corps uh, were graduates of St. John's. There were a few others, one who became a professor here at the Naval Academy and one who became the chief clerk in the Navy Department were graduates of St. John's College in Annapolis. Probably the, the most notable of the 1812 period was a, a kid named George Washington Mann, M-A-N-N. -N. He was born over the corner of Main and Conduit Street in Annapolis. His father ran the City Hotel, uh, and where George Washington stayed a few times, and so that's why he named his son George Washington. His mother was actually the widow of uh, Buckland, a famous architect who built the Hammond Harwood House up here, among others, in Annapolis. And, uh, had died young and, and uh, Mary uh, Mann uh, remarried, owner of the City Hotel. And their son went to St. John's College and then into the Navy and he went across the, the uh, Atlantic with Preble to help fight Barbary War against Tripoli. He, we know he marched across the de desert of North Africa. Presley O'Banion, an early hero of our Marine Corps, um, uh, under Eaton uh, and they captured the town of Derna. Uh, which led to the to the peace and in, in um, against Tripoli at that time, uh, and he brought home a, a, a sword that's on exhibit downstairs that was used by the Marine Corps is the pattern for the Marine Corps officer sword that they still use today, the famous Mameluke kilt, um, George Washington Man. But he was home on leave in 1807. Uh, just be after the Chesapeake Leopard affair, there was a little problem out here in the Chesapeake Bay with some 
uh, French pirates. There had been a couple of French ships in the bay, some of, one of them needing uh, uh, critical repairs. And a couple of the seamen from them had uh, absconded and, and uh, taken a, a boat out of uh, Baltimore. And so Mann put a, a group of uh, locals together in boats and, and went out to chase, but, but the pirates had already been taken care of by uh, David Porter, who had taken a group out of Baltimore and, and taken care of them. I don't know whatever happened to, to uh, Midshipman Mann. He disappears, but in 1979, one of his descendants walked into the front door of this museum and gave us his, one of his uniforms, a uniform jacket and that sort. And it's just amazing, that jacket's on display downstairs, too. It's one of the oldest uh, surviving pieces of American naval uniforms. Uh, it, and it's lightweight muslin material that he probably wore uh, through the desert of North Africa uh, in 1805 during the attack on Derna. In 1809, uh, this guy comes to town, Stephen Decatur, in the USS United States for provisions. He's, 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 on, he's sort of... Uh, on test trials for the ship that had been refitted uh, at that time. He's not here to pick up any diplomats. He's just uh, put in probably for fresh water and so forth. And, and during the War of 1812, on the 5th, 25th of, of uh, October, he captures the HMS Macedonian, whose figurehead is down the street on exhibit or a copy of it now. The original is up in our attic. In 1811, this guy was here, Isaac Hull, uh, with the frigate Constitution. He's provisioning the ship and also boarding a guy named Joel Barlow, who is going to be our new ambassador to France. And Barlow's ha Hull is having quite a time with Barlow because Barlow has this large entourage he's taking with him, including his mother-in-law. And uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Hull, Isaac Hull, is having quite a time in Annapolis. Uh, there's a wonderful letter in his biography um, about the women of Annapolis. And, how, how he was being entertained by uh, some of the younger women, but also some of the grand dames of, of town, uh, including the, the wife of the governor, Lloyd, uh, in the Chase Lloyd house and so forth. They finally depart oh, and, and, and go over to France. And then after uh, Paul comes back, and he, he is here in June of 1812, when on the 18th of that month, the U.S. Congress, for the first time in its history, uh, declares war and declares war on Great Britain. Hull immediately starts provisioning his ship um, and he gets orders from Washington uh, to go join Commodore Rogers off of New York, uh, departs on the 4th, fires a salute to the Union on the 4th of July and heads down the bay. On, on board with him at that time uh, was a, a young local fellow named John Conti who had, he re, had recruited. Uh, he was a, now a second lieutenant in our Marine Corps and Conti would be on board the Constitution uh, through the rest of 1812 and would return here after his service uh, and with the prize money he earns off of, uh, of being aboard the Constitution in two of its famous battles, uh, he buys property down in South County just south of Annapolis uh, which he names Java Farm uh, after the HMS Java uh, which Constitution eliminated on, on the 29th of December 1812. The Constitution, when it left here, that's the famous cruise uh, where it went up the, up the coast uh, and off of New Jersey. The wind died and wouldn't you know a British squadron would come over the horizon. Hull got guys out in the boats to pull it and of course the British uh, started the same thing. And then downstairs you'll see a, a, a famous uh, what's called a sea anchor. It was like a giant umbrella that they 
hauled out in front of the ship and after and, and put in the water with a rope attached and after 92 hours of very strenuous labor, Constitution was successful in escaping uh, the British squadron so that a m month later on the 19th of August up in the North Atlantic it runs into one of the ships of that squadron, the HMS Guerriere, and we have that famous battle in which Constitution earned its uh, nickname Old Ironsides. And, uh, but that cruise actually left from here, Annapolis, Maryland at that time. Also in Annapolis at the beginning of the War of 1812 was the USS President under command of this guy, John Rogers, who enjoyed uh, being able to anchor at Annapolis because he was originally from Havre de Grace up at the head of Chesapeake Bay and he was visiting family when orders arrived uh, to him uh, to go protect the water approaches to New York. Or, or in, and in 1811 uh, he leaves here uh, and fights the, what some historians consider the first battle, naval battle of the War of 1812, the, the President and Little Belt. As I say, I've always been impressed with the, by the fact that these guys were, were, were actually here at Annapolis. Now, when the war broke out, of course, the, two, the principal defenses, as I've mentioned, were Severn, Fort Severn and Fort Madison. Uh, but they were having a difficult time manning those forts. Uh, of course, uh, there was a certain draw by the federal government uh, for uh, Annapolis area men to join the service and help protect the country, particularly up along the Canadian border. Uh, where all the land battles um, uh, of this war uh, were fought in the early days of it. So they were having problems in, in maintaining. Also, I think that there was also a problem uh, with uh, diseases here at that time, uh, particularly smallpox was one of the, the worst, but you also uh, uh, had uh, typhoid and malaria. I think this could have been affecting uh, some of the uh, troops that were manning Fort Severn uh, and, and uh, Fort Madison. In the summer of 1813, of course, the British had sent uh, a naval force. They had almost immediately after the war was uh, declared blockaded the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, they sent a um, naval force up the bay under uh, Admirals Warren and Co Coburn. Luckily, they, they, well, they set up a base on Tangier Island, which they man maintained throughout the war. They um, made this amazing uh, dash up the bay. Uh, past Annapolis, scared everybody here in town when they saw this naval force under Coburn going up. And they did attack uh, ahead of Elk, Havre de Grace. Uh, they went up the Sassafras River, attacking Georgetown and Fredericktown, and then eventually came down and uh, made a landing in, in Kent Island, uh, attacking uh, St. Michael's on the eastern shore. A lot of cute stories, which I'm sure other speakers in this series will tell you about the uh, how the folks at St. Michael's hung, hung lanterns in the tree trees at night to uh, keep the uh, British firing in the wrong uh, directions. All in the summer's work, Coburn had made uh, living here in Chesapeake Bay pretty miserable for the local residents and many of them had fled in, inland to their plantations here uh, in the Annapolis area. Although they thought that the uh, forts were protecting them, there, there are reports that British ships, uh, particularly the Menelaus, came in and actually sent a landing party ashore and under the cover of darkness. Uh, that uh, supposedly walked all over Fort Madison, for example, and realized that, hey, these, these, these guys aren't doing a great job in, in manning these forts. H however, one would think that if, there, if the British started firing, I'm sure that they would be manned very quickly. But in the summer of uh, 1813, they were having problems, and so uh, this guy, Charles Morse, who was a great hero already in the Navy of the, of the, the battle, he was a, uh, the equivalent of the executive officer of the Frigate Constitution in the battle with Guerriere. 
He had been wounded in that battle, but he was a, a, a great hero of that battle and was advanced in rank, much to the objection of some of his fellow naval officers for his role in that battle. And he was sent, he was at that time over in Washington, they were build, building a, a new, new ship called the Adams, USS Adams. And he and his crew were sent over here to Annapolis and manned Fort Severn in uh, August, uh, early September of 1813. However, uh, not long after that, the British uh, uh, left the bay, or the main forces anyway. They always um, went to the Caribbean for the winter. <laughs> Reminds me of, of a Zeke Hopkins and what he did after uh, he got control of the Continental Navy in 1776. And, uh, went off to Bermuda, but anyway, um, and the Bahamas. Uh, so the, the and also his his troop his uh, sailors uh, off the Adams were getting sick they, with fevers, uh, probably malaria, and so they returned to to Washington and let the locals. Uh. Meanwhile, during the winter of 1813-14, uh, Joshua Barney, who was an amazing character, he was a native of Baltimore, Maryland, fought in our revolution and then our War of 1812, first as a commander of a privateer named the Rossi. He is also, I call him the American Lafayette, because in between the revolution and the War of 1812, uh, Mr. Barney went off to France and actually got a commission and served in the French Navy. We have a wonderful letter, it's still on exhibit out here for a few more weeks anywhere, which Lafayette writes to Barney. <laughs> Uh, offering him uh, any assistance he can give him. Barney was then in Paris. Uh, Barney got disenchanted with Napoleon and, and came home. But in the War of 1812, after his command of the Rossi, he came back to the Baltimore area and the, the Navy Department uh, talked to him into helping out with the uh, British and the Chesapeake Bay. And in the winter of 1813-14, uh, uh, he put a flotilla together up in Baltimore uh, which he came down here to Annapolis to, to provision, or at least some of the crafts were in and out of, Bal of, of Annapolis being provisioned. We did have uh, things like rope walks here and um, sailmakers, and uh, we had helped a great deal in the Annapolis area with the Maryland State Navy during the American Revolution. However, when he sails down the bay in the spring, you know, the British had come back from the Bahamas or the, or the West Indies, and, and Barney's flotilla was no match uh, for the ships of the Royal Navy. Uh, and you're going to be really deep into that, those events uh, and how they uh, chased him up the Patuxent River and St. Leonard's Creek and so forth. Uh, the British also uh, had with them at that time a new Admiral Cochrane, 4,500 hardened troops that had served in the British Army in the Spain primarily, and they were hungry for action. And there was a meeting between Cochrane, Coburn, and Ross, uh, General Ross, the commander of the British Army, and uh, they decided to land uh, uh, their troops at, at Benedict on the uh, Patuxent River uh, for the march on uh, the, the federal capital in Washington. Right at the towards the end of the war, of course, uh, the British, 1814, Napoleon goes into uh, exile for a hundred days, frees up some of the British troops, of course, that were sent here for this action against Washington. And they actually planned three invasions of America, one north that was stopped by McDonough at the Battle of Plattsburgh or uh, Lake Champlain in September of 1814, uh, Fort McHenry, of course, and then uh, what became the Battle of New Orleans, the largest uh, battle of the war that was fought after it. Uh, late in the war, this guy, Oliver Hazard Perry, was assigned to uh, the 
superintend the building of a new ship at Baltimore called the USS Java. He came to Annapolis when the Java was finished. Now this happens just after the war. So Annapolis is actually, although it's on a decline uh, financially, uh, economic, uh, the war and actually the Navy is helping it uh, earn some income. And right after the war, uh, Perry's here. Chauncey, they build a new ship of the line uh, up in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, and it comes down here in 1816. The President and Mrs. Madison and uh, members of the cabinet and senior naval and marine officers come over here and visit a young midshipman in this picture says he's an admiral of course not in that picture named Franklin Buchanan a native of Baltimore is aboard he was of course later became the first superintendent of the Naval Academy this ship the Franklin comes under Stewart uh, right after the war and aboard that is uh, a young uh, midshipman named Farragut and it's interesting because once they get to the Med, Buchanan is reassigned and uh, they have both Buchanan and Farragut who were of course the two senior officers opposing each other in the famous Battle of Mobile Bay uh, on the same ship. Well of course what, what helped, uh, uh, as I say, Annapolis probably benefited more from the, from the war than it being affected since there was no landing here. Um, there were a number of guys from Annapolis. It, the, the State House was used as a lookout for that fleet when it went up the bay in, in 1813. And again in, in September of 1814, there were a lot of people that were scared here, again moving stuff out to their plantation. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.